I want to ask you a really quirky question. How many of you have ever dug for clams on the Oregon coast? Many of you have. How many love to eat? Aren't they razor clams? Is that what we eat on the Oregon coast? How many of you love to eat razor clams? Oh, a lot of you do. It's kind of a fun thing to do, and the reason I, I tell you that is that I want to tell you a story about a gal named Barbara Krensavage. She actually didn't really like clams all that much. She didn't eat clams a lot. But one particular day, she had a hankering for clams. She had an old family recipe that she wanted to use, and so she went out to the store, and she bought a type of clam we don't have here on Oregon Coast. It's called a quahog. Quahog? Quahog. Okay, somebody's an East Coaster and knows the quahog clams. Any of you ever had quahog clams? A couple of you have. So they're actually only found on the East Coast. They're actually found in a very limited place between Cape Cod and New Jersey. And so, her so she brought home a bunch of these clams. She was getting ready to make her family recipe. Her husband was shucking the clams. And he came upon one that he was sure was dead. It was very discolored, and it looked like it wasn't alive. And he actually chucked it. And Barbara said, no, let me look at that. And she pulled it out of the garbage can, and she opened it up. And inside of this clam was a rare purple pearl. I have a picture of it. Can you imagine? This is what was inside of that clam. In fact, there's only one in two million clams, quahog clams, that have a pearl this rare. And no one actually knows how much it's worth because they're so rare. It's been estimated that it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you imagine just shucking clams, ordinarily preparing to make a meal, thinking something was worth throwing away, and inside of it is this precious purple pearl worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And when I heard this story, of course, I thought about how Jesus talks about in the scriptures about the kingdom of God is like a precious pearl that it would be worth selling everything for if you could have it. And I imagine that, that, that they felt similarly in just being in possession of this rare, rare treasure. In, it's in Matthew 13, 45, where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And I think that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is like a pearl of great value. As our Creek leaders just shared, and we've talked about it this summer, the more and more I've studied this book and the more I've immersed myself in Ephesians over the summer preparing for this year of study, my overall overwhelming sense is that this is a rich, deep treasure. And so we talked about it's a treasure, it's gems, it's jewels, it's, it's valuable pearls that are contained in the clamshell. We can call it the clamshell. Inside, there's a valuable priceless, immeasurable pearl contained in the book of Ephesians. And it, this is of such invaluable wealth to us because it is going to deepen our understanding of Jesus and it's going to challenge us to live our lives in light of who he is. We're going to get such a different picture, such a deep, rich picture of who he is and it's going to then challenge us to live in light of who he is in probably a way we've never really been challenged before. 
And so this week, we got to do a flyover. We got to look from 30,000 feet. We got to read the whole book of Ephesians from 30,000 feet. And what I want to do just briefly this morning is I want to talk about what I think we can anticipate as we now get ready to go deeper into this book and how I think we're going to be challenged as we do. So let's talk first about what we can anticipate. Ephesians is actually called the crowning glory of the New Testament. That's what people refer to it as, is the crowning glory of the New Testament. And it has two distinct parts, which you might have seen as you went through it this week. Chapters 1 through 3 are deeply theological. We're going to wrap our minds around some really mind-blowing things. And then chapters 4 through 6 are deeply practical. So we're going to figure out after we glimpse Christ like we've never seen him before and understand what our salvation means, then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul's going to tell us how we should then apply this to our everyday lives. We're going to be so practical by the end of this exploration. The, the key verse for the whole book of Ephesians is actually found in the first chapter, which we'll look at next week, Ephesians 1.3, which is the same verse that Lee and Dee just shared with us. It says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we think about Ephesians, just think of those two words, in Christ. Those are the key words that we're going to be hitting on over and over again. It's all about being in Christ. So as we look through the first three chapters, we're going to be going very deep into theological matters. So um, theology simply means the study of God. So the first three chapters being very theological, it's because we're going to really open up God the Son. We're going to study God the Son. And what is the impact of knowing God the Son on us as individuals and us as a community, as, as people who belong to him? So um, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to actually, in the first three chapters, we're going to hit on four theological themes you're going to see these over and over again as we open up the first three chapters. So I want to kind of walk you through what are those themes? What are we going to be looking at? The first theme that comes through so clearly is the gospel. For any of you that go to River West Church, the gospel has been a theme that we've been talking about on Sundays. We've been talking about the living church, and the gospel is central to being a living, healthy church. And so Ephesians is going to deepen our understanding of the gospel. We're going to be tempted, however, to read Ephesians from a very individualized perspective. So we're going, to, we're going to be tempted to open the pages, and we're going to be tempted to read it as if it's just about me, and it's just about you, this gospel. But Ephesians is written to a society that was very community-oriented. You know, in America, we, we're so individual, we're so... Um, we're so independent that we tend to look at Scripture always from a, this is God's word to me, which it is. But we have to understand that God is writing to a people who lived and moved and breathed in community. So it's more than just about my relationship with Christ and your relationship with Christ. It's about our relationship with Christ. And so he's going to share the gospel with us in the perspective of a people who belong to Christ. Um, it's about community. And, um, and we have to be thinking as we go through this exploration, this journey, that Paul is speaking to us as, an, think of us as a tribe, 
as a new society in Christ, as a communal group in Christ. He's speaking to us in plural, in a plural sense. So that's going to be some, the first thing that we explore deeply and theologically. The second thing we're going to look at is the church. Paul's going to speak to us about the church, and Ephesians magnifies the importance of the church. Now, the church is God's plan A for bringing his kingdom into this world. God calls every believer to be part of the church. This is our people. This is our community. This is our new society in Christ. And we know that we live in a very broken and hurting world. And so the church is also a gift to us. It's the place where we gather. We don't have to live as isolated Christians alone in our own world, in our own heads. We get to live in community with each other. And so this, the church is, is meant to be our gift. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we're not out here as an island. We are welcomed into a family. And so Paul's going to speak into that. He's going to help us understand that we are a new society of people. And this church is a place where we are to come and find encouragement and refuge and healing and hope and care. And then also it's the place where we're to be strengthened, where we're to be equipped to do God's kingdom work. So the church is really important, and Paul is going to help us understand that through Ephesians. We're going to learn how the body of Christ is to function And he's going to talk to us about how the body of Christ is to function in unity, but not in uniformity. So he's going to talk to us about how the the body of Christ is um, is to be a variety of different gifts being used. Everyone have doing their part, but in unity, not uniformity. And so um, Ephesians is, is the gospel good news of the church. And Paul's going to remind us that the, that the church is an upside-down society. It's very different than the rest of the world, but it's meant to be a light. It's meant to be a witness into the brokenness of our world. I was thinking this week about um, the hurricanes that hit in Texas. And I was thinking about how it was the church that was the first to rise up in, that, in those communities in Houston. We saw a video here one day on a Sunday morning, the church organizing people, the church gathering supplies down there, how the churches were some of the first responders to the hurricanes. I know some in our, in our even group here went down there from our church to gather with others in Houston churches to minister to the community at large. You know, the church is an amazing, really um, global network of resources. People can be called upon to pray. People can be, can be um, activated to go and serve, to collect things, to give. It's an amazing... Um, body of people who can care for needs when they arise, or even in times of disaster. So in Ephesians, the church is characterized, here are the ways that the church is characterized in Ephesians. Paul's going to speak to us that it's, it's a place of life, not a place of death. It's a place of unity, not a place of division, racism, or alienation. It's a place of wholeness or righteousness instead of corruption and wickedness, which is what we find in the world. It's a place of love and peace, not a place of hate and strife. And it's a place where there is actually conflict with evil, not a place where there is compromise with evil. And so the church looks very different than the rest of the culture. And so we're able to see how when the church is healthy and when the church is, is, is um, engaging the way it's supposed to in the culture, it is a place that is a brilliant witness for Christ in a dark and broken world, and where people come and are strengthened, are encouraged, are equipped to do God's kingdom work. 
Ephesians is also going to talk to us about us. Um, We're going to learn a lot about Ephesians. It's going to mature us in our faith. It's going to grow us up. This study is going to open up a whole new realm of insights about who Jesus is and the spiritual riches that we share. We're going to go deep in our understanding of him. I think that we're going to be revitalized in our appreciation for our faith. For any who feel sort of apathetic or confused or maybe just very young in faith, I think there's going to be an awakening. For all of us, there's going to be a a deep appreciation for our faith. I do think of it as though, as I was going through the study this summer, I kept thinking that I was like in a mine shaft. And I kept going deeper and deeper and deeper, trying to understand these riches that are mine in Christ, that are ours in Christ. And I felt like every time I'd go and there was a ruby and there was an emerald and there was a diamond. And the deeper I went, the more precious the jewels they, that, I, that I discovered. And I, I sense that for all of us, that as we go now, starting next week, deep into the, this word, that we are going to just discover these precious treasures And it's going to be rich, a rich inheritance for us, something that we will take away from this year, and it will be so blessed by it. The fourth theological thing that we're going to touch on is culture. So Ephesians is going to speak into our culture. And we talked a lot about that last week. We talked about our culture and what ancient Ephesus was like. We saw the similarities in godlessness and in in idol worship and in immorality Um, They had an obsession with sex. Our culture has an obsession with sex. So there's so much that we're going to learn about our culture and how to engage in our culture, much the way that Paul was engaging with the Ephesians in Ephesus. So that's the first three chapters. Three chapters, deeply theological, studying about God the Son, Jesus Christ, going deeper than we've ever probably been in our understanding of him, and looking at these four theological categories— the gospel, the church, us, and the world, our culture. Then we're going to switch into chapters 4 through 6, and we're going to get really practical. The question I think of is, how then shall we live, based on what we discover in verses in chapters 1 through 3? So we're going to talk about how we respond to these things. And I think for any, if your soul is weary, if you're thirsty, if you hunger for more of Christ, if you want to just be revitalized in your faith, this is going to awaken you up to that. Um, Ephesians is going to answer many, many practical questions, things that you maybe have always thought about. Like chapter 1, we're going to answer the question, why worship? Why do we worship? Or what should we pray for? In chapter 2, we're going to look at questions like, what's so amazing about grace? And who are we? We're going to learn a lot about our identity. In chapter 3, we're going to ask the question, why is the church a big deal? And what should we pray for for the church? In chapter 4, we're going to ask the question, how can we be unified? And how do new people live? New people in Christ. How do new people live? In chapter 5, we're going to ask the question, how can we imitate God? And what is God's plan for marriage? And in chapter 6, we're going to look at how do we parent? How should we see our our workplace, our vocation? And how do we fight? By the time we get to the end, it's going to be really exciting. Um, So Ephesians is going to, one of the things I love about Ephesians is it, it spotlights spiritual battles that we deal with in our lives. And it talks to us about how to combat spiritual opposition and how to understand how those things that, are, that come to us in a spiritual attack generate doubt or temptation or fear or anxiety or depression in our lives.
So the truth about this, I want you to know, is that Ephesians is going to explain our identity in Christ. Ephesians is going to tell us who we are in Christ. It's going to explain our identity. And this is something that is under great attack in our world. Many, many women come to me and say, help me understand who I am in Christ. I don't understand. And I think Ephesians is going to do that. It's going to speak into that for us. And we experience so much confusion about this because we've got messages bombarding us from our world, from our media, from our friends, from our family. We are just overcome with messages trying to speak into who we are. And when we take our hearts and minds and we look at God's word, God is going to tell us who we are. And it's beautiful who he's created us to be. And we are rich in treasures because of our relationship with Christ. So we're going to know who we are as individuals, but we're also going to know who we are as a church, who we are as a community. Because Our identity isn't just about us. It is about me and Jesus. It's about you and him. But it's about us and him, us as a community. And so how how are you going to be challenged? Well, I think we're going to be challenged to embrace our true identity as daughters of the king. It's hard for us sometimes to walk around and realize I am a daughter of the king because sometimes I feel like I am just a servant of my family, (laughs) And it's hard to understand who we really are, not what we do, but who we are and how valued we are by Christ. And so Paul is going to challenge us to live in light of these riches that we've inherited in Christ and to stop living like spiritual paupers. Have any of you ever heard of a very famous woman named Hetty Green? Hetty Green. This is a picture of her. Isn't she beautiful? She, um, she died in 1916. And she was known as the richest woman in America. And she was also known as the witch of Wall Street. The thing about Hetty, she was so wealthy. I actually studied her life a little bit, and she inherited a lot of her wealth. Most of her wealth she inherited, but then she had a a very keen business sense. From the time she was a little girl, she was raised by her grandparents. From the time she was six, she used to read the financial papers with her grandpa. And then as soon as she was old enough, she began to invest. And she was very, very smart in how she invested money, especially in this era. But the thing about Hetty was that she was a miser. In 1916, when she died, her estate in 1916 was worth over $100 million. Can you imagine? But she was a person of great wealth, but she lived like a pauper. She actually wore the same clothes every single day. She never washed her clothes. She washed parts of them. She didn't wash the whole thing because she didn't want to waste water. And she wore her underwear until it wore out, and then she bought a new pair. She did not clean it. I found some very interesting things about her. But she ate oatmeal cold every morning because she didn't want to pay to heat it. Her son broke his leg, and she was so determined to get him medical care from a free clinic that by the time she got him to a place that would take him for free, an infection had set in so badly in his leg, he had to have it amputated. I mean, this woman had, her estate was worth $100 million when she died, and yet she was such, she lived like such a pauper that her own son lost his leg because she wouldn't get him the proper care that he needed. They said that um, in the end, she actually brought on her own death because she was arguing about the value of skim milk with one of her employees, and she had a stroke and died. 
So we shake our heads in disbelief, right? We're like, how could somebody who had that much money, who was so wealthy, how could somebody like that live like such a pauper? But you know what? We are so wealthy in Christ. We have these spiritual blessings in Christ, and yet how often do we live like spiritual paupers? How often do we leave grace on the table? How often do we not pray because we're too busy? How often do we not read the word because the paper or the internet's more valuable? How often do we leave this beautiful, rich relationship with Christ to just fester away in quiet, in some other space, rather than live in light of these riches that we've been given? Because Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father, we are welcomed into his presence. The, the curtain has been torn. The throne room is open. We belong to him. We are daughters of the King. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're invited into community. We're told to ask, seek, and knock, so it will be given. And yet we, we go about our busy lives and we live like paupers, with our head down, scuffing our feet in the dirt, concentrating on our problems instead of realizing that we have the Lord of the universe, the God who died for our sins to give us eternal life, who's given us the spirit, who's given us the truth of his word, who calls us into community so we don't have to be lonely, who, who gives us gifts to use for his kingdom. We leave all of that at the table and we go out and we live our lives like poor people. And so Ephesians is going to wake us up to that. Ephesians, when we wrap our minds around these first three chapters, we're going to wake up. This is who we are in Christ. This is what our salvation means for us. And then we're going to say, now go and live like it. Go and live like it. And I think that as we go through this book, we're going to find that we're going to be challenged in some areas. I think we're going to be challenged to break free of strongholds that hold us captive to know that there's power in Christ to be free of anything of this world that holds us captive. I think we're going to be challenged to, to um, put aside shame from our past sins and blame and step into the freedom that Christ offers us. I think we're going to be challenged to be courageous, to be more confident, to be braver in sharing the good news of Jesus with other people, to live life in light of who we are. I think we're going to be challenged to be faithful, to walk worthy of the manner to which we've been called, which is a famous verse in Ephesians 4.1. Another theme verse, I think, is walk worthy in the manner to which you've been called. And I think we're going to be challenged to say, Lord, how am I not doing that? What would that look like if I were to really walk worthy of the manner to which I've been called? I think that when we're facing scary situations, we're going to be challenged to be more courageous, um, to stay clear-sighted in the face of danger to be able to step out with the armor of God and to be um, more confident in that. And then I think we're going to be challenged to fall in love with the church. You know, sometimes church has a bitter taste. Some have been hurt by the church. We are a community of broken people. There's no way around it. They say if you find the perfect church, don't join because you'll ruin it. There's no perfect church. And do you know that even in this room right here, we represent 30 different churches in our community? We are women from a lot of different churches here. And I'm, I'm not saying fall in love with River West, though I'm in love with River West. I'm saying fall in love with a local church. Be part of a local body because God has called us into that. It is his gift to us and it is our equipping to do his kingdom work. It's important. And so, but we have to work hard to keep the local church healthy 
And we have to be agents of building unity and, and, and being surrendered, being so surrendered to Christ ourselves and so um, walking worthy in the manner to which we've been called that as we engage communally, we bring health into the church. We bring blessing. We bring equipping. We bring, we bring um, we're an asset to the greater body. And so that's going to be our challenge, to fall in love with the church, but then also to be growing and vibrantly alive with Christ so that as we engage with the church, we bring health and blessing to it. We are going to be so richly blessed this year as we open up this clamshell of God's word, and we're going to discover this, that this invaluable truth is more precious than a purple pearl. It's going to be so precious to us. I thought that one of the best ways that we could be at 30,000 feet and have a snapshot of what Ephesians really holds is to look at this video by the Bible Project. You're going to want to show this to your husband and your kids. I know you are. So BibleProject.com, Ephesians. And here, I think you'll enjoy seeing this. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem, where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1 verse 10 that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then he here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. 
After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about, but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now, in chapter two, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter one, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus's resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's Spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears, and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one, and one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus's new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, 
New humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's Spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the Spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the Spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus' people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the Messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus's body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. Isn't that good? Now you know everything you need to know, (laughs) but we're going to spend a whole year unpacking it. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to end in worship. Father, we just are so thankful for this rich treasure that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you, Father, for just this journey we're going to take going deep into your word. Lord, we need your spirit to teach us. We need you to really help us understand, because we can't do it without you. But we acknowledge that this is a wonderful gift that you've given us and a challenge to live in light of it. Lord, even now as we go out to our groups and as we worship you, would you begin to show us something new about yourself and about who we are in relationship with you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.